one of the things that I have uh, come to realize as we come to the kind of the last stop in our tour of the churches of Asia Minor in the ancient uh, churches of, of Revelation, uh, seven letters that Jesus wrote, the seven different specific real churches, uh, historical churches in that region. We come to the last one today, and as I've been thinking about this, uh, one of the dominant themes of this letter led me to thinking through my life. And as I think about my life, um, there are several times in my life where I've realized that there are different things uh, that make me get really sick, <laughs> different things that make me feel nauseous and that make me throw up. The night that I um, asked Olivia to marry me, the night where uh, I, we got engaged, the night I proposed to her, we were at Epcot and um, we had just gotten off the Mission Space ride and Mission Space is a very nauseating ride and there are warnings, countless warnings. I think I, I read somewhere that there are 38 different warnings that say if you're pregnant, if you're prone to getting motion sickness, if you're prone to nausea, then you ought to be careful when you ride this ride. Uh, I didn't really think I was prone to those things uh, until I rode this ride. And for the next 30 minutes, like, you know, we're on a time limit and everyone's trying to get in line before us and all that stuff. But for probably like 30 minutes, I'm just sitting outside a mission space <laughs> saying, hold on a sec, hold on before we go to the next place. I felt like throwing up, and that was probably the last time uh, I rode an adult roller coaster. Now it's like I go to SeaWorld and I ride all the little ones with the kids, and I'm like the biggest person on it, but uh, only to ride it with Elijah or Elise or with Manny. Um, but big person roller coasters get me sick now. I get nauseous, and I realize I can't ride these things anymore. If, if you've traveled with me overseas, maybe in the past 10 years, on a mission trip, or uh, Olivia and I, we went to Israel uh, a couple years ago, went to Israel, same thing happened, either on an airplane or on a car ride in Ecuador, in the Dominican Republic, in Nicaragua, doesn't matter where we are, uh, I get really nauseous now when I travel long distances, and it can be really difficult uh, for me, and difficult for people who are traveling with me, uh, because I get nauseous. A uh, few years ago, uh, some folks from, from Harvest said, hey, let's do, we're going to go do this thing. We have a membership, um, and we can bring in a guest for this thing called TRX. It's called, it's resistance training, uh, some kind of a cross-training thing using rubber bands and things like that. The class was about 15 minutes long, and at, as soon as I was done with that class, man, I, it was frustrating because the coach, the teacher was so kind and so gracious and so loving um, and just really encouraging to everybody, and he's like encouraging them, speaking their names, saying all these nice things. When he gets to me, he's like, I wasn't doing anything well, and so he just whispered to me and said, put your butt down a little bit, and just really encouraging. But at the end of that 15-minute class, I remember I had to go out, uh, went into the bathroom, and I threw up uh, in the bathroom of that, uh, of that gym, and I came out, and I was like, man, I felt so much better after I had thrown up. It wasn't just that, but it was after I ran a two-miler in Winter Park many years ago. It was a bunch of different things, but I, the, the last time I did Beachbody Insanity, we did it during a missions training, and I remember working so hard for that, and at the end, I was like literally seeing stars. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to throw up. I realized that through the years, there are a lot of things that make me throw up, and so everything I do is done in order to keep me from getting into those situations where I will feel nauseous so that I need to throw up. Wouldn't you do the same thing. If you, were in a, if you were put in positions where you knew this was going to make me sick, wouldn't you do whatever you could to avoid being put in situations like that? What if it was somebody that you loved? Somebody that you loved, you knew that there were certain things, certain smells, certain places that made them nauseous. I believe that it would make sense for us to take those things to heart and begin to realize 
that if, if this is something that makes somebody that I love feel sick, then I would do whatever I can to try and avoid those things. Today, as we come to the seventh letter in the book of Revelation, the letter that Jesus writes to the church in Laodicea, Jesus tells us there's something that makes him get sick and something that makes him nauseous and something that makes him want to vomit, and it's something about the church. And so as we read Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, uh, pray, I pray that the Lord would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us in order that we might hear and that we might listen to that which turns the heart of our Savior, Jesus. This is Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. This is God's word. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. What is it about a church? What kind of a church? What is a characteristic of a church that makes Jesus want to vomit, want to throw up? I know this isn't maybe uh, the kindest, gentlest note and tenor, but um, I ask that you would bear with us and, and, and uh, get to the end and we'll see the love and the loving tones that come through this. What is Jesus trying to say? Three thoughts here this morning. Here's the first thing. A, a lukewarm and lazy church leaves a bad taste in Jesus' mouth. A lukewarm and lazy church. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Here's what Jesus says. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. These are strong words that Jesus gives here. The language of spitting one out of my mouth. Literally, Jesus is saying, uh, I want to vomit you. As I put the water of your church to my mouth, I drink of it, and it makes me want to vomit that, to spit that back out. What is Jesus saying here? Sometimes it doesn't seem like the Jesus that we believe in would say something like that, but Jesus very clearly says that here. Something about the church in Laodicea, and perhaps something about the church in our day today. In order to understand, you have to understand uh, the city of Laodicea. This is probably one where the local flavor of the city that he's talking about comes out the most clearly in the letter. Laodicea was part of a tri-city area, three cities that made up 
the Lycos Valley. It was Laodicea, and then to the north of it was a city called uh, Hierapolis, and then to the east of it was a city called Colossae, which is where uh, Paul wrote the letter to the, uh, to the Colossians. Every one of these cities, kind of like today, when you think of certain major cities, I don't know, when you think of Paris, maybe you think of art or you think of, um, you think of culture when you think of Paris. When you think of Orlando, people from outside of our city usually think of something like Disney World uh, or the NBA bubble. When you think of Washington, D.C., you think of politics. Every city has something that makes us uh, associate that city with something. Now, the Tri-City area here was really important, really important. Hierapolis, which was, again, six miles to the north of Laodicea, was famous because they had these natural hot springs. Some of you really love hot springs, especially those uh, whose bodies ache and you, you know, it takes a long time to get out of bed. Hot springs were there, kind of like uh, at Yellowstone Park, you could go to these natural springs and you can bathe there and you could, the, the bubbles come up and uh, like the Blue Lagoon or, yeah, the Blue Lagoon in, in, in Iceland where in the midst of cold weather, there's, uh, there's, uh, there are lagoons that you can go into, and these hot springs would bring this therapeutic effect. The warmth of the hotness of the water uh, brings healing to your muscles and to your bones. This is what Heropolis was known for, and so people would want to go um, to this place in order that they could hang out at the hot springs. Now, six miles to the east of Laodicea was the city of Colossae. Colossae was the opposite of the hot springs of Heropolis. It was located on these snow-capped mountains, and so uh, when the snow would melt, it would lead to uh, cold water running down the mountain, and this is where people would go. This was like the avion, this is what Olivia said, it's like the avion water source of Asia Minor. This is where you go. If you want to get a, a, some nice cold water, uh, if you wanted to be kind of people who like to fill up your water bottles and bring out your jugs of water, you would go to Colossae, you would fill up your water bottles, and then you'd bring it back to your home. So there's Hierapolis in the north, there's Colossae in the east, and then you have Laodicea, which is where, uh, where this letter is being written to. Laodicea was neither of these, but it was known to be probably the richest area in Asia Minor. This is where the crazy rich Asians of Asia Minor would congregate and would live in this place. It, it might be like the Singapore of Asia. Um, it might be like the Dubai, probably uh, would be more like it, uh, where um, in, in the year 60 AD, this earthquake came and it leveled the city of Laodicea and the Roman Empire, uh, who was over in charge of the city, the Roman Empire sent government funding and said, we will pay for the rebuilding of this great city and they said, nah, you know what? It's all good. We don't need your help. We don't need your money. It's a city that had been destroyed by a hurricane, and FEMA says, we're going to rebuild your city. And they said, with all due respect, we can take care of this ourselves. Like, that was the city of Laodicea. They were ballers. They had all kinds of money, and they had nothing that the world thought that they were in need of. Where did all of this money come from? It came from three major streams of income. In that Lycos Valley, the, 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 the grass there on the mountains were so lush that it would be a shepherd's dream. And so what happened was they would bring out these sheep and these animals would graze there. And there was one particular in Laodicea that produced this black wool. So it was like this really fine, expensive kind of a wool that could only be found in Laodicea. It got exported all over, but this became one of the calling cards of the city. The textile industry was thriving because this became like the Gucci uh, headquarters of Asia Minor. It was like Milan. When you think of Milan in Italy, when you go to Milan, we've got to go shopping. We've got to buy our leather goods. We've got to buy our handbags, whatever it is. Whenever people would go to Laodicea, they would always make a trip because they wanted to get their hands on this black wool. Their clothing industry was on 
point, it's where the ballers would go to shop, right? That was one major stream of income. The, uh, the second major stream was that they had the most advanced medical facilities of anywhere in the ancient world. They had a medical, hot, medical school that trained and produced workers. If you were sick in Asia Minor and they didn't know what to do in your city, they would medevac you out. They would helicopter you out uh, to Laodicea. This is where you would go if you wanted to get the best treatment. Now, in particular, the kind of medical treatment that was the most significant where people, th this would be like the Mayo Clinic for the eyes. If you had eye issues, they created this kind of a, a special salve that would be put on your eyes. If you had eye issues, if you had glaucoma, if you had cataracts, if you had any kind of issue, uh, they would bring you to Laodicea and they would put this medical salve on you so that you could see and it worked wonders. And because of these two industries, the banking industry was booming and thriving within Laodicea. It became the richest city in the ancient world. Banking was, made it like the Tokyo, made it like the New York City um, of the ancient world. It's where Chase Bank would be headquartered, all the banks would be headquartered in Asia Minor. This was a city that was affluent beyond measure. They had everything that the world wanted. It was a traveler's dream and it was a resident's deepest desire to be able to say, I live in the area code of Laodicea. This is what everybody wanted. For all that they had then, there was one thing that they didn't have, and this was the tragedy of Laodicea. They did not have access to water. Because the city was built not based on the natural resources, but built on the roads that would bring as many people as possible into the city. And so they built this city in order to maximize visitors, but they didn't think about the water supply there. And so if we're, we're a church in Laodicea and we go to the bathroom or we want to drink water, we go to our, I don't know, we go to our refrigerator and we push the water thing, out would come a certain kind of water. Where would they get the water from? The water would be piped in through aqueducts that would come from Colossae. Okay, remember Colossae, six miles to the east. So if you can imagine water that comes through pipes six miles away. Ice-cold, snow-capped water, when that begins to melt, it comes filtering through these pipes, limestone deposits would get mixed into it. But by the time it made its six-mile journey to Laodicea, out our water tap, it was no longer cold for us to drink. This is what Jesus is saying here. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold like Colossae. You need to bring refreshment like Colossae, nor are you hot like Heropolis. Don't bring healing. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Some of you, before you came to worship service, you stopped by Starbucks or you stopped by Dunkin' Donuts or I don't know, lineage coffee for you, if you're a baller, you stop by some lo local hipster joint and you got your coffee. You are, I just, today I just want a regular coffee, please. Would you like that hot or would you like that cold? So uh, Olivia, my wife, loves coffee. In the morning, she loves getting hot coffee at home, hot coffee. If she's out and about, if she's already experienced the heat of the Florida day, then she'll get iced coffee uh, when she's out. But if she were to order coffee and say, I'd like a coffee, and they say, would, would you like it hot or cold? Never in her life has she said, can you just actually make it lukewarm? What would you do if you were to be offered lukewarm, or lukewarm anything for that, lukewarm Coke? 
That's actually pretty nasty. Be, I think hot coffee would be pretty, hot Coke would be bad too. But here's what Jesus is saying. When you, bring, you order coffee, you order whatever it is, and you put it to your mouth, I'm expecting it, it, it to be refreshing hot coffee, I'm sorry, well, healing, soothing hot coffee, or refreshing iced coffee, but when you put it to your mouth and it's lukewarm, Jesus is saying, I just want to spit that out of my mouth. And this is what he's saying about the church in Laodicea. Every church, you could figuratively see it, we are contained in a cup. And when Jesus lifts the cup to his mouth, the question is, are we bringing healing to the hurting? Are we bringing refreshing to the weary? Or are we lukewarm? What Jesus is not saying, he's not saying, I wish you were hot for me, like passionate for me, or you were cold, like you say you hate me. Instead, you're lukewarm. I wish you would choose to either love me or hate me. That's not what Jesus is saying. Would Jesus say, you know what, I wish you would choose to hate me. That's not what he's saying here. When you understand the context of the people to whom he's writing, Jesus is saying, I know your deeds, right? That's what he says in, in verse 15. I know your deeds. You're busy. You're doing a lot of stuff. You've got VBS going on. You've got congregational meetings because you're talking about the stuff I'm doing. You've got house churches. Your youth ministry is popping at the scenes with all of these meetings. You've got this and that and the other. You're doing all of this stuff. But the question is, are you hot or are you cold? Or are you lukewarm? says, you're busy doing a lot of things. But the question we need to ask is, in our busyness, is what we're doing bringing healing to people? In our busyness, are we bringing refreshing to the souls of people? Or are we as a church just kind of lukewarm? Neither healing nor refreshing, just kind of there. How does a drink that was once piping hot become lukewarm? How does a drink that was ice cold become lukewarm? Pretty simple, just by leaving it as it is. By letting it sit there. Yeah, it might be busy doing other things. We might be moving it around, putting it here and there, giving it to somebody, giving it to but, but basically what lukewarm is, it just, it just begins to reflect the temperature of the space in which it exists. It's just a room temperature cup, a Joe. Church becomes lukewarm, one that was once so hot that brought healing, so cold that it brought refreshing, becomes lukewarm when it begins to reflect the culture around it. No longer has anything healing nor refreshing to offer to the world around it. If Jesus were to visit our church today, could it be possible that he might say, you at Harvest who once were so hot, you at Harvest who once were so refreshing, are now just lukewarm? Could it be said of us? Any given moment, it could be. See, the challenge of the church in Laodicea was that they were lukewarm, but they had no idea. They, were revel they thought they were doing awesome. They said, we've got everything we need. We're killing it as a church. We're doing great. There's nothing that I need. Everything is going well. And the problem, the most insidious part of the church of Laodicea was not just that they were lukewarm. They were lukewarm, and they were glad to be lukewarm. 
We're still going to church. We're still actively doing stuff. We're still busy. Our calendar is still full. But Jesus says we're lukewarm. That's what he says to the church in Laodicea. You're busy doing all these things, but something is missing in the midst of it. Your life is no longer healing. It's no longer refreshing other people. And the fact of the matter is, you've become okay with that. You're lukewarm, as Francis Chan says, and you're loving that you're lukewarm. They lived in the midst of the most comfortable city in the world, the most comfortable church in the world. They were comfortable being comfortable. And the very nature of comfort is that its goal in being comfortable is so that we would end up feeling nothing. It's what a lazy boy is supposed to do. It's what a zero-gravity chair, the best chairs are supposed to do. Just feel like you're floating on air. Feel like you're feeling nothing. And it numbs us to the reality of our condition that we have lost the sense of mission of God in the world. Have you become like the world in which we live? Have we become a thermometer that simply reflects the temperature of the world around us? If people looked at our lives and they had to make a decision, are they followers of Jesus or do they worship some other God? What would be the God that people say that we worship? Apart from, again, our Spotify playlist, apart from Life360 showing people that we're often at church, the currency of our lives, our time, our money, and all of the energies that we're giving, would people say that, yeah, that's a person who worships Jesus. They're a person who their life is surrendered wholly to him. Or would they say, you know what? Uh, based on the trail that leads to the throne of their heart, their time, their efforts, their passion, their energies, I would say that the God of their lives is this person. The God of their lives is their work. The God of their lives is that hobby. The God of their lives is that TV show. What would Jesus say? What would people say is the God that we worship in life? Here, here's how you know that we've become lukewarm. That we love the Lord our God. Absolutely we love him. But we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. We love our neighbor. Yeah, we do. But we don't love him as much as we love ourselves. We don't pray to God out of sheer enjoyment of, of being with him. We pray to God only when we're in need of something. We don't hate sin so much. What we hate is we hate the penalty of sin, or we hate being caught in sin, or we hate hell, but we don't really hate sin. And so we dabble in it, we engage in it. We think, what's the bare minimum that I can do and still be called a Christian? This is what it means to be lukewarm and to be lukewarm and loving it, to be comfortable in this space in which we reside and to be comfortably comfortable in it. We read the Word of God in order to, to fill a duty. We read and we hear about stories of, of Christian sacrifice and we're stirred in our hearts by it, but we never think that that possibly could be what Jesus is asking of us to do. These are the things that define our lives, our spirituality, our relationship with God. Then we have moved towards becoming a people who are lukewarm. 
when Jesus lifts the cup of lukewarm Christianity to his mouth, he says, you know what? That's not what I had in mind. The first thing that we see this morning is that a lukewarm and lazy church leaves a bad taste in Jesus' mouth. But before you walk out and leave, would you continue to hear the words of Jesus? The second thing that we see here is that Jesus lovingly counsels a lukewarm church. If you were to hear, if your friend were were to say to you, you know what, he'd make me want to throw up. (laughs) You know what, your life, gosh, you just, you make me nauseous. You make me want to vomit. You would not expect that the very next thing out of their mouths would be, you know what, I love you more than you could ever dare to imagine. But that's what Jesus says. Verse 17 says, those whom I love, verse 19 rather, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to you because I love you and I want to correct you. Verse 16, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, about to spit you out of my mouth. Verse 17, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need anything. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Jesus using in verse 18 especially is the language of counsel, loving counsel. Who is this counsel coming from? I don't know if you've ever seen a counselor. I've seen some pretty bad counselors before. One counselor um, several years ago, it was a group counseling session after some of us had experienced some kind of uh, some kind of trauma, and so this grief counselor came in, and from the get-go, right, um, she was everything that a counselor ought not be. Uh, she was a lot more interested in talking to us than she was in listening to us, and it was very difficult. When you have people who are a week fresh from coming off of uh, deep trauma, uh, you don't need someone talking at you. You need someone to listen to you. And as our folks would begin to talk, on multiple occasions, she would interrupt them and finish their sentences before they could get to it. And they would say, no, 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 that's not what I, that's not what I was going to say. And I remember being so frustrated. And after she did this, like, group session with us, she said, I'll be waiting next door if anyone wants to come and have individual time to, uh, to consult with me. So all of us just sat there and like, ain't nobody going to go. I don't want to go. You want to go? I don't want to go. I didn't like her. She's kind of weird. So every five minutes, she would pop in and look in the window. Be like, she's looking. Somebody go. Ain't no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. You go. Nobody wanted to go. And so we ended up paying a lot of money for a little bit of time spent with her because she just was not a good counselor. The book of Isaiah tells us that Jesus is not just a counselor, but he is a wonderful counselor. This is what he says at the beginning of this letter. He says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He's the one who sees you faithfully, truly as you really are. I, I remember one of my buddies, Elliot, he, um, Elliot um, wanted to, to, to organize a group of pastors, about 15 of us, to get together. And um, his, his basic thing was, I want you to be able to, to, to do ministry for a long, long time. And one of the people that he brought in, get this, his name really is Jack Nicholson, not the actor, not the Shining, not the Laker f- super fan, but a guy named Jack Nicholson. 
And, he, and Ellie would tell us, man, guys would get in front of Jack Nicholson and for, for 30 minutes of talking. And within 30 minutes of talking, this guy, Jack Nicholson, had them completely pegged. He, had them, he, he knew everything about them. He wasn't, I don't think he was like Holy Spirit-led prophetic kind of thing. It was just like he knew the questions to ask. He knew the, the uh, motivations of people. And he, he, Ellie would say, within half an hour, he knows everything about you. Like he has read you like a book. That's a good counselor. Jesus comes and he says, I counsel you. In the midst of your lukewarmness, in the midst of the fact that you have made me nauseous, in the midst of the fact that I want to vomit a church like you out of my mouth, there is loving counsel that comes. Jesus says, I love you more than you could ever dare to imagine. And this is the counsel that I would bring to someone who is lukewarm. See, here's what a good counselor does. They expose the blind spots within our lives, within our hearts. They expose the things that we've erected walls to keep us from seeing even. They, they, they bring down the things that, that cause us to, to feel like I'm living out of this place of, of wealth and health and goodness when really behind the scenes what's lurking is something dangerous and something that is destructive. A good counselor is able to call those things out and to show us those things. That's what uh, my counselor did when I was uh, my, the good counselor that I had over a period of, of many, many years. What he helped me to see were things that I couldn't see in myself because I was so ingrained in living a certain way that any other way of, of living seemed so foreign to me. And it took someone from such a different cultural context, but who still loved Jesus to come in and through his lens of scripture, interpret my lens of scripture, which was so deeply tied with things that were dysfunctional to help me to see the faultiness of the foundations upon which I was building my life. And this is what Jesus is doing to the church in Laodicea. He says, guys, here's your problem. Do you think because you've got this amazing wool, this amazing clothing factory, that you've got what you need? He says, in reality, you're naked. You've got to see that. You think that because you're producing eye cell for all these people, because you're helping people see physically that you've got all that you need? He says, you don't realize how blind you are spiritually to what you really need. You think you're rich because you've got these industries, because you've got the best banks in town, because you could rebuild your city from scratch using your own financial resources. You think you could do all of these things. You think you're rich and you don't need a thing. Jesus is saying, let me pull back the wizard's curtain to show you who you really are. Jesus says, I counsel you to have what you really need. This is our sinful nature in that we think that because I have material wealth, because I have material physical health, because I've got everything that this world tells me that I need, that I have everything that I need. This is what they said. We've got everything. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. Jesus says, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind. And naked. You're the emperor who's not wearing any clothes, but you think you've got it all. He says, would you allow the good and wonderful counselor to come and speak into your heart? How do you know? How do you know that you're lukewarm? Well, we ticked off a bunch of different things, but here's another reason we know, because we say, I don't need a thing. I don't need anything. You go around in house church, you go around in your small group, what are your prayer requests? I don't have any this week. I don't have anything to pray for. 
I don't have any needs. Everything that I need, I've got. Jesus says, let me peel back the layers and expose you for who you really are. Another way that you know that you've become lukewarm is in our thinking that we don't need a thing. Our prayer lives become really, really, really shrunken. How's your prayer life today? Jesus says, I know your deeds. That means they're, they're doing stuff. Like they're busy. They got a lot going on. He says, you could, you could be doing a lot of stuff in the church. You'd be doing a lot of stuff for me. You'd be doing a lot of stuff in the name of Jesus and yet still be so broken and needy and lukewarm. It might seem to others that everything is looking great and that there's nothing that you need. But he says what you need is you need a wonderful counselor to come and to speak into the situations of your heart. How are you doing? School's going great. Work is going great. You know, we're in a good place financially. We're not struggling with that. No, I'm healthy. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about that. How are you doing? At a spiritual level, how is your heart? How are you doing the deepest places, the deepest part of who you are? Jesus says, let me give you an x-ray of your heart. How are you doing? As the blind spots in our hearts are being exposed. Because we, 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 can, easily, we can easily deceive other people and ourselves into thinking that we're doing well without giving thought to what really matters. That's a condition of our hearts and our relationship with him. Jesus says, here's your reality. You think you're rich. You think you're, you're able to see. You think you're clothed. But really, you're poor. You're naked. And you're blind. Here's what I'm coming to you to say. So I'm counseling you. Here's what you need. You need to buy from me true riches. Gold, refined in the fire. Faith. Real clothes. White clothes, he says. Not that black clothes that make you think that you're everything in this world, but white clothes to cover your shameful nakedness. That's what you need. You need the gospel of Jesus to wash over your sins. You need to see spiritual salve so that you're not the blind leading the blind. Do you see? When you look into the word of God, do you see what Jesus is saying? Do you see with eyes of the Spirit or do you walk with eyes of faith alone? Jesus says your spirit, your spirit life, your spiritual life matters deeply. Most importantly, would you see that? Second thing is that Jesus lovingly counsels a lukewarm church. Here's the last thing. The last thing. We're talking up here now. I want to bring it back down to our level here. The last thing is that Jesus personally invites you to help renew a lukewarm church. Okay, Jesus personally invites you. That's Sean, that's Josh. It's Jen, it's John. Right? It's Kristen, it's all of us. Personally, Jesus invites. Where, where do we see that? Here's where we see this. Verse 20, Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I'll come in. I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus doesn't say, here I am, I stand at the door, I'm knocking. 
if the church would hear me, then I'd open the, and, and open the door, then I would come in and eat with them, and they with me. He says, no, 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 it, he becomes personal. He says, individually, I'm coming to each of you. To each of you who realize, man, you know what, I'm poor, I'm blind, I'm naked, you know, I'm lukewarm, I, 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 I'm not who I think I am, I'm not who people think I am, I am who Jesus says I am, dearly loved, but at the same time, deeply bankrupt and lukewarm. Jesus says, if that's you, and I stand at the door and knock, then each one of us, okay, each one of us, Jesus has given this personal invitation, and he's saying, I'm standing at your door, I'm asking, what will you do with what I am inviting you to have? The reason he does this is because you know this, every, ch- in a lukewarm, how does a lukewarm church become a lukewarm church? It's not that someone pour some lukewarm water on a church building and all of a sudden the church becomes lukewarm. Why is a lukewarm church like that? It's because a lukewarm church is made up of lukewarm people, right? Well, that church is so passionate for Jesus. What does that mean? Is there some kind of an entity that rises up and causes the church to be passionate? It's the Spirit of God, but working through individual people. A passionate church is passionate because it's got passionate people who comprise that church. A welcoming church is a church in which people are a welcoming people, right? Individuals and groups of people who choose to be welcoming make up a welcoming church. And so that's why Jesus says, I'm not going to this entity as a church, as an organization. I'm going to each individual. And I'm saying, you can be, I am personally inviting you to be the one who brings a renewal to a church that is lukewarm. The question is, do we want him to do that? Do we know that we need him to do that? Do we recognize what we have done with Jesus? Do you, do you see what's happening here is that the church, which once maybe held Jesus front and center of their lives and of their ministry, have pushed Jesus increasingly to the periphery, to the fact, to the point that he's outside the doors of the church now. And like Anna, he's knocking on the door and he says, I know you're in there. <laughs> I see your deeds. I see some movement. I see some rustling going around in there. I'm not asking you to build a snowman, but we used to be best friends. I wish you could tell me why. Could Jesus be saying that to us today? Have we pushed Jesus from the center of our lives? And when Jesus began to touch upon the things in our lives that we don't want to surrender to him, kind of gave Jesus the stiff arm, the Heisman. Said, now, nah, Jesus, you know what? Um, I will legislate my own relational life. Thank you very much. You know what, Jesus? I will legislate my own financial life. Thank you very much. You know what, Jesus? Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're getting a little bit too close for comfort. And so we begin to push Jesus further and further and further away. That's what the church in Laodicea had done. And figuratively, Jesus was standing outside the church. And he knocks on the door. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. See, this is God's grace to us. Do you understand? Jesus said, you're naked. You ain't got no money and you can't see. But at the same time, he says, I counsel you to buy these things from me. But Jesus, how can I find, how can I find the market if I'm blind? Oh, and, and who of us would dare walk outside of our house if we're naked? And how can I buy that if I've, got, if I've got no money? Jesus says, because you could not come to me. That's why I came to you. 
You don't, need to, you don't need to come anywhere. You just need to hear me knocking at the door and open the door of your heart. And I will give you the gold. I will give you the money by which you can buy gold refined in the fire. Jesus has done everything in grace. Even come to your door knocking. And he says, if anyone opens the door, I'll come in and, and literally he says, I'll sup with you. The word where we, for which we get the word supper. Three meals in those days back in the same way it is today. Breakfast, super light meal, just bread. You dip it in some olive oil, you eat it, and then you go to do what you've got to do. Lunch was simple, sandwich, olives, whatever it is, eat on the sidewalk, you eat it on the side of the road, and then you, you go back to work. But supper, dinner, is where you see these great big frescoes of Jesus at his last supper, just chilling, straight chilling. Jesus hanging out with lepers, Simon the leper, and he's reclining at the table at his crib. Here's Jesus hanging out at the tax collector's home, Matthew, and all these other tax collectors are there. Here's Jesus hanging out at so-and-so's house, Mary and, and, and Martha, and, and, and people are coming in, and, and they're just chilling. Somebody comes and anoints Jesus with oil. Supper time was not a quick meal. This is where you just hang out for a long, 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 long time. One of, our, uh, one of the, the, the gals who was at our worship service last week, a um, couple weeks ago, she went to, I think it was like a Greek or some kind of a wedding, and she was like, it was a week-long festivity. That's crazy. That's a long meal. But that's kind of what a Jewish dinner was like. A supper was a long, it wasn't a week long, but it was a long, it was a lot more about the fellowship than it was about the food. Jesus says, if you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and we'll just hang out together. That's what I want. That's what Jesus wants from you and me. He said, as he knocks on the door to give us the counsel that we need because we don't see the blind spots within our hearts, Jesus says, I just want to love you. Man, I just want to love you. I just want to sit with you. I just want to be with you. What's the cure for a lukewarm church? It's letting Jesus come in and just being with him, having fellowship with him, opening the door to him. The same thing as we come to the end of this series, as we come to the end of this sermon, as we come to the end of this letter, the same thing that every one of the churches in Asia Minor needed is what the church in Laodicea needed. What did the church in Ephesus who had lost its first love, what did they need? They need to hear Jesus knocking at their door, saying, let's come back to first love, come back to first love, come back to that place. What did the church in Smyrna who was on the verge of extinction because of persecution. What did they need? They needed to be intimate with Jesus again so that they could stand for their faith in Christ. What did the church at, 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 at Thyatira need? The church that was given the compromise because they didn't want to be persecuted and, and they weren't sure if holding on to Jesus was worth it. What did they need? They needed a fresh vision of who Jesus was. They needed to open the door of their hearts, of their churches to Jesus, to see him again and to believe that he's better than anything else that this world could ever give to them. What did the church in Pergamum that was compromised morally and in and, and, and their teaching, letting false teachers come in to, to woo them into sleep? What did they need? They needed a vision of the beauty of Jesus and to hear the counsel, to hear the words of Jesus and to believe that he is the faithful and the true, the amen, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. 
What did the church in Sardis need? The church that looked so good, that had a great reputation, but inside, in reality, they weren't very good. They needed to see that Jesus loved them still and that he wanted to be with them and he never gave up on them. What did the church in Philadelphia, who was longing for doors to be open, who wanted to be used by God, what did they need in order to be faithful? They needed to see Jesus in his glory again. What do we need? Whatever, whatever church reflects our church, whatever church reflects your heart and mind, what do we need at the end of the day? We need to hear the lover of our souls knocking on the door saying, if anyone hears my voice, I'll come in and have fellowship with them, intimacy with them. This is what we need. This is what the church needs. This is what the world needs to see in us. And Jesus says, I paid everything for you. All you need to do is just open the door. That's all you need. I gave everything. I, I was the one who was clothed with the finest, but I became stripped to my nakedness. I was the one who was rich beyond measure, and I became impoverished and poor. All this so that you might have everything that you desperately need in life. I gave up all that I had in order that I can gain you. And Jesus says, would you make that great exchange as well? Jesus wants to be with us. This is not a religion it's a relationship with the one who loves us so much. It's not about what you can and cannot do, and these are the people that the church accepts and this, who they don't. It's not like that. Jesus was not like that. It's about relational, relational living, not a religious lifestyle. Out of that relationship with Jesus, we begin to live and seek holiness and seek grace and seek truth, but out of that relationship. What if, what if instead of seeing our lukewarmness as just a choice I'm making, we see it in relation to our our Savior who loves us? What if instead of seeing our time alone with God as just something that we do to check off a list of, of duties, we see it as really spending time with Jesus? How would that change the way that we live? How would that change the church if we reclaim the vision, the relationship that we want to have, that Jesus wants to have with us? A few weeks ago, um, before school ended, this one particular day, Elise, she's our seven-year-old, six-year-old at the time. She woke up with some sniffles. She might have been faking, but it was sniffles nonetheless, and she didn't want to go to school. And so Olivia and I were talking with her, trying to see uh, if we should send her to school or not. We said, Elise, do you, feel, do you feel so sick that you can't go to school? She said, yes. <laughs> so wrestling within our hearts between that perfect attendance at the end and caring for our child and not wanting to be a bad, give a bad optic of in the midst of coronavirus, we send our kids, sniffling kid to school. We said, okay, you can stay home. Well, that day, Olivia had to go out for work, and so I was home with her. This was also part of the wrestling in my heart. I had work to do. I had people to see, places to go, worlds to conquer, and she would just slow me down from doing that. That was my thinking. And so I looked at my schedule. I said, okay, Elise, you're going to be with Daddy. I canceled two meetings. One meeting, Elise, you can come with me to go there. And so as I was having this meeting, she was sitting there just watching, staring, bored to death, but still thinking that maybe if she endures well that I'd give her a treat, kind of like a puppy. So here we're going home, and the whole time I'm thinking of all that I could have been doing this day, this, that, and the other that could have been accomplished and how productive it could have been, but I'm being slowed down by my sniffling child. And so we go home, we're eating, we're eating, I forget what it was, pasta or something like that, and 
as she's eating her food, every few minutes she would stop and she would want to play this like silly hand games, patty cake, patty cake, or whatever it is, or daddy do this, or daddy let's do this, or, or daddy let's play 20 questions, daddy you want to play who am I, let's play this game. And, and in my mind, I'm rolling my eyes saying, Elise, just eat, right, eat, get your belly full so you can take an ass, so dad can do my work, let's go back to sleep. She's eating and as it looks like she's almost done, she puts her fork down again and she's like, daddy, let's do this. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. All right, at least do it. And then quickly eat, quickly eat. So she's eating. And after a while, after probably about like 30 minutes or so of eating, she again puts her fork down, her spoon down, I forgot what she was using, puts her spoon or fork in the bowl and she gets this smile on her face and she said, daddy. And I looked at her kind of impatiently and she said, Today is a great day. So I dropped my food, I dropped my tood, and I was like, you know what, Elise, you're right. Today is a great day. Today is the best day. She said, no, it would be better if mommy was here. <laughs> I said, no, but it's, no, it's still a great day. Today's a great day. Okay, let's pretend you didn't say that. Today's a great day. For the rest of the day, I began to see what she wanted. She didn't think about all of these. All she wanted was, I just want to be with my dad. That's what I want. Just being with the one I love, that made today a really great day. And Jesus calls us, knocks, says, you come spend some time with me. Sometimes we're thinking, Jesus, why are you talking so much? Why is this chapter so long? Why are you telling me all these things? Jesus, why are you going on and on and on and on? And sometimes I feel like Jesus just puts the Bible down. And he says, you know what, David? Today's a great day. I miss being with you. Today's a great day. What if we began to see every day through the eyes of Jesus that we would make great day upon great day upon great day for Jesus because I'm almost certain that in his love for us if it's a great day for him he'll make it into a great day for us as we hear from him he stands at the door and he knocks let's hear let's open the door let's come and fellowship with him let's pray together let's pray and as we examine our hearts what is Jesus saying to you today how is Jesus counseling you through the blind spots of your heart? What is Jesus speaking into your heart today as a response to these words that he's spoken? Let's pray. Let's pray for a few moments right now, asking the Lord that he would prepare us, help us to come back to him, help us to love Jesus again, help us to move Jesus back into the center of it all, Help us to see Jesus as eminently beautiful, supremely worthy, absolutely breathtaking, that we would see him once again. Let's pray like that for a minute or so, giving our hearts back to Jesus, welcoming, inviting him to do his work in us. Let's pray for, for a minute like that, and then we'll continue on.
in a moment we're going to come to this table of God's grace where we will have communion with Jesus and with one another as well. As we come to this table, if there's anything that we need to repent or anybody that we need to forgive, by the grace of God, let's choose to do that so that we can come to this table in full awareness of God's ceaseless grace for us. Let's take a few moments more to pray prayers of repentance before we come to the table of grace. Father in heaven, we thank you so much uh, for this day of worship where we could be reminded of your love and of your grace and of your mercy and your goodness and your kindness and your love. Thank you that in exposing the places of our hearts that may initially be difficult for us to see, you do that in love as a surgeon points to the tumors within that are malignant that must be removed in order for us to have life. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust the wonderful counselor, to believe that you are good and that you are for us and that every intent and desire of your heart is to bless, is for our good. Lord, as we prepare to come and sing in response the wonders of what you've done for us, Lord, awaken our souls again in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.